The show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety. Twists, endings, and all. Without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. Hello, I'm Paul Tyler, and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books, and TV shows in their entirety. This week, we're watching Steven Spielberg's 2008 adventure sequel, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And just another final warning, we will be talking about the whole of the film. We will ruin it for you. So if you've not already seen Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, go away and watch it now. Then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right. On with the show. Here at Spoiler, two out of the four of us are wittertainees. That is, for non-churchgoers, avid listeners to the Kermode and Mayo Five Live Movie Review Podcast. In fact, the very show you're listening to was inspired by me listening to their review of the Catherine Bigelow Oscar winner, The Hurt Locker, and being quite annoyed about a big spoiler they dropped. So we said, why not make a programme openly discussing plot twists, endings, and all. So, Paul, why are you prattling on about a different podcast and not introducing us to Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal School? All right, snarky, I'll tell you. I want to know everything. I want to know. One of Mark Kermode's repeated sayings is more than relevant here. Just because a lot of people went to see a movie doesn't mean to say a lot of people enjoyed it. Now, it's fair to say a huge number of moviegoers found a number of things about Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal School alienating, the length of the title being one of them. Our hero surviving a nuclear blast in a fridge, the giant ants, and of course, the aliens. Interdimensional beings, in point of fact. Our old pal Roger Ebert, of course, loved it all the more for its outrageousness. He wrote very proudly that, What I want is goofy action, lots of it. I want man-eating ants, sword fight between two people balanced on the back of speeding geeks, subterranean caverns of gold, vicious femme fatales, plunges down three waterfalls in a row, and the explanation for flying saucers and throwing lots of monkeys. US film historian Leonard Maltin rated this film above Temple of Doom and Last Crusade. Empire magazine were all about it, saying, a slick, fun film that has by no means sacrificed the fast action beats of the first three. Even the uptight minis at the Telegraph looked in. Why then? The difference of opinion between those that pay to watch films and those that get paid to watch films. The secret may lie in two films ranked above Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in the year's top ten. The Dark Knight and Iron Man blockbuster films with much better effects, stunts, CGI, and most importantly, script. I think I'd cover my ears if I were you. It took three different scripts being produced over 15 years to get this movie off the ground, and maybe, just maybe, the critics understood that an Indiana Jones film should have a dodgy script and far-fetched ideas, because if you go back to previous installments and see through the nostalgia, you might see why this chapter is more in keeping than you think. Which side of the fence will our junior film doctors fall on with the Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? Will they revel in nostalgia or wish that Indiana Jones had moved with the times? And crucially, will they think that the title is just too blooming long? Do you have any idea how many medals this son of a bitch won? Great many, I'm sure. But does he deserve them? 
Later in the show, inspired by Spielberg's habit of concealing secret references in his films, we'll be uncovering some audio Easter eggs. But first... Joining me in the studio to discuss Indiana Jones and the longest unnecessary movie title ever <laughs> is someone who is adept with a whip and another who looks great in a hat. It's Andy Goulding and Rachel Bennett. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> okay, Rachel. Yes. Da, 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 da. Let's just get that out of the way. Right, okay, right. So, um, previous instalments. For a start, I'm going to ask, have you seen them all? Should, should it be a, a given? No, 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 should it be a given? Should it be a given? Yes, it You'll be, be surprised that someone someone in this room hasn't seen all of them. Ooh. I know. I don't have a thing for Sean Connery. Anyway. Um, <gasps> That's the best one. Is it? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Really? By miles. Definitely. Yes. Right. Okay. Oh, nobody recommended it now. I won't go for it. Right, anyway, oh. never mind. Um, it's got a really nice girl in it. <laughs> that helps. Which is really pretty. I mean, I, right, I am. I take it. I'm shallow as a puddle. She's very um, pretty. And that is definitely... All right, that's hit the back of my yes. mind. Yes, nasty, It doesn't matter. She's really pretty. <laughs> okay, right. Um, so... After a shaky start. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, you say? Right, yes. anyway. Right, no. Uh, what did you make of this? Okay, so, first of all, laying it on the line, this is the order that I put the films in. Mm. So it goes Last Crusade, Rage of the Lost Ark, this film, and Temple of Doom. So it's above Temple of Doom, but that's not actually saying an awful lot because I hate Temple of Doom. I actually really enjoy it on a real base level. I love seeing Indy again because I was in love with him when I was a child. And I love that Marion's in it because she was my kick-ass girl when I was younger so there's loads of nods for the fans loads of nods for the fans throughout but it's very creaky in places and as an older I'm sure as a child I would have loved it but as as an adult looking back it's it's not up there with Last Crusade which is fantastic and it's not touching Raiders either I don't know well there's a few things that I think I think they do wrong Indy isn't one of them obviously but yeah it's it's not as bad as people say but it's also not as good as it could have been. Okay, Andy, <laughs> it's rubbish, isn't it? <laughs> no! <laughs> well, um, this is a film that I've always felt needed someone in its corner, and it sounds like uh, Rachel's to an extent, but I'm I'm prepared to be one of those people too. Uh, <laughs> the The amount of uh, bad feeling towards this film is uh, incredible. And when I announced our spoiler page that we we're going to do it and said. Uh, we'll give it a fair hearing. Did it really deserve that much of a drubbing? The amount of people who came back and said, yes, it deserved more. It's <laughs> awful. It's terrible. Now, when, when this came out, I think people overreacted quickly and massively to how bad they thought it was. And there's one person I know in particular who was very savage and wrote it off as a disaster for the franchise and was vehemently like denying it even existed for years afterwards. Is that Shia LaBeouf? No, that, that's <laughs> but it, that person was one of the biggest idiots I ever known, and I feel safe in saying that because it was me. Um, <laughs> I absolutely despised it. I went to the cinema. I was so excited when it came out, and I went to the cinema and I I hated it so much, and I haven't watched it since. So when we said we should do a, a Spielberg, uh, and this is like years down the line, I hadn't watched it again. And I actually suggested this and thought, let's give it a fair airing. Let's, let's, rather than pick one of the, the established classics, let's see if it's really as bad as all that. So I got out of a copy and I knew that if I walked into any pound land in the country, I'd find it. And I did. <laughs> and so I bought it home and it was a Saturday night and, and like I, was, I was all ready to watch it. And I felt a real sense of excitement, uh, even though 
and had such a negative reaction. It was an Indiana Jones film that I didn't know inside out. And I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm really quite excited about this. And I watched it again and I had a really positive reaction to it. I agree that it doesn't come anywhere near Raiders of the Lost Ark or Last Crusade. And it's riddled with flaws. It's got more than its fair share of really silly moments. But uh, as you were saying earlier, so is Temple of Doom. And Temple of Doom is something that, like the fact that people have, have sort of deified this trilogy as like some sort of untouchable, amazing thing. And then you, you go back to Temple of Doom. And I mean, I think Temple of Doom has a great first 20 minutes and an amazing closing half hour. But in between that, there's this hour which ranges from irritating to boring to like flat out racist uh, it's really there's a lot wrong with that film what I think Crystal Skull is missing is that kind of phenomenal element and this is why I still narrowly rank Temple of Doom a little higher because I think things like the the minecart ride alone in Temple of Doom is so phenomenal that it's worth going back for. And though this film has a lot of big action scenes and some, and some good action scenes in it, there's nothing quite as sort of breathtaking and phenomenal as that or the bit on the rope bridge or like the that opening 20 minutes where they have to fight in the club and then they they go and jump out of the plane and all that. So I still would put Temple Doom a little higher, but I think watching Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I have a more kind of consistent ongoing enjoyment of it there's not that big a lull that there is in temple of doom so yeah i i think i think it's well worth revisiting i think people just need to drop that sense of initial disappointment they had of it not being exactly what they imagined and go back and watch it and i think they'll get a lot out of it Mm, i totally agree because i saw it in the cinema too i'm a massive indie fan and uh, very very excited but also wary because i thought crystal skulls so this is going a different way it's not a religious artifact and also, he's, he's a lot older, and I thought, and George Lucas had a massive hand in it, and I'm never mm-hmm. sure about that. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so I was ready to be slightly disappointed, and I came out. I was entertained. I actually enjoyed it the first time round in the cinema. Um, I thought some of the CG was a bit ropey even then, which was surprising considering George Lucas owns ILM. But yeah, I, I enjoyed it more the second time. I think yeah. it is a it's a sit down on your sofa on a Saturday afternoon and watch it type of film, yeah. I think. And, and that's what it's best at. And just having Harrison there with with, uh, Karen Allen was just great for me. I loved it. I completely agree with you. I thought I'd... Once upon a time on the radio, I said that um, Fine Young Cannibal's version of Suspicious Minds by... Obviously, originally, it wasn't written by Elvis Presley, but I I I said that was a much better version than the Elvis version. I was expecting a ton of people to get back and say, no, you're a fool. Uh, (laughs) I I think most people agree, actually. That's fine. And actually, I I came in here today expecting, I was saying, because not recently, probably in the last year at some point, I'd seen Temple of Doom and was hugely disappointed. Mm. That was so much more fun when I was a kid, I'm sure of it. But it was the only thing around. It was the only game in town almost, wasn't it? Mm. Again, I expected, I perhaps, I thought you two might hold that in a touch more nostalgia but you know it's obviously lost something over the years and in the intro i I waffled on about the uh, the other films that were out uh so number one was the dark knight number two was iron man so you know things have really really moved on Mm. particularly cgi stuff like that um but this did have for me some old-fashioned things i liked some old-fashioned things i didn't like Mm. old-fashioned things i didn't like was the a-team style shooting now recently (laughs) i spent a good afternoon watching a-teams and back-to-back on some strange channel further down the numbers that i care to admit on the tv and it's just you lose that you get that thing don't you where they're shooting thousands of rounds off a machine gun <laughs> and no one's getting... I mean, I, you know, I, I don't imagine I'm a very good shot, but I imagine <laughs> if they're right in front of me and I've got a massive automatic machine gun, 
I stand a good chance of it. Uh, and no one ever gets that in the A-team. And actually, The Walking Dead, the TV series The Walking Dead, they're, they're recently they've been very, very guilty of that as well. You know, lots and lots of shooting and, uh, you know, right in front of the main characters and nobody, but nobody getting hit. It's ridiculous. And there was a lot of that in this film as well. I'm happy with that in, in something like this, though, because it's they were originally conceived as like an homage to those old... Saturday matinee serials which things like that happened all the time and so I think it's it's trying to keep it it's trying to keep it less violent and keep it in that more kind of family friendly yeah. area and so I don't think you need to I mean the the whole premise is quite ridiculous and so it's yeah, I don't yeah. think you need that level of violence to I hear be realistic you, but I can't get around it <laughs> I, as we all know they should make films for me um, <laughs> What I did like, though, was the things about the Harrison Ford doing his own stunts, and you can see that quite clearly mm. in a lot of things. Uh, and also, I mean, actually, the, the sword fighting between the two Jeeps, I was just thrilled by. Uh, I, I think we've, we've, made, we've certainly mentioned, and you mentioned in your race, about the CGI not mm. being attached. There were bits in that where you think, oh, yeah. uh, but it's still, it's still very, very thrilling. But I did write just down here, you know, all these other stuff, but uh, yeah, I just wrote this uh, Harrison Ford, though. Oh, yeah. I mean... Oh, yeah. My, oh, my. I know. It's just, the guy oozes charisma, doesn't he? <laughs> I mean, does. Well, I've, it's, I've it's written... just, it's enough. It is. It totally <laughs> <It's enough>. is. <laughs> I've broken this down into things that I liked and things that I didn't like. And, and top of it is, not only do I love that Harrison Ford came back and totally owned the role again, but I love that he insisted that they go for the older indie. So he refused to dye his hair for the role. Uh, he wanted to uh, challenge those kind of ageist preconceptions in Hollywood. And he actually asked for more references to his age to be put into the script. I love that. Uh, and it's just like, it's great. It means that you can you can change the era. So we get him in a new era, which I think that the whole 50s era is quite well realised. And we get to see a new indie. So the, one of the other things I loved in here is that he's a, a more progressive indie. He's older and he's wiser. So you don't get these things like in some of the old ones. He was very kind of, you know, that sort of, in the 80s, there was that kind of sexist hero kind of thing. He, he like refers to women as doll face and things like mm. that. And he's he's a bit of a philanderer. And here you can see that he's grown older and he's he's started to regret that a little mm. bit. And he realised that Marion was his true love, which he probably, he probably just threw over for another dalliance with someone else. And so including that kind of uh, that growth within the character made it really, really something special, I think, for me. There's also that moment just when he first appears and the first thing you see is his shadow. Oh, isn't and that you, great? And you just, I love that they did that. Yeah. They didn't just go, oh, here's Indy. Yeah, and not only that, but as shadow. soon as you see the hat go on the shadow, oh, you hear the... I love the thematic, the music bits, the little music signatures throughout, like when they go into um, into the hangar and there's a little sort of bit of the of Raiders and you just think, oh, this is so exciting. Yeah. So there's so much in there for the fans that it still baffles me a bit that the fans were so against it because they, they actually gave us quite a lot. And, OK, they took away a little bit too, but they gave us a lot. Of, look, we, we do appreciate that you love this and that you love that. And look, this is where the arc is. And and so all the way through, I was going, ooh, ooh, it's, yeah. it's that. You know, but, yeah, which is why I think in a way you need to be watching it at home on a TV with somebody else that loves it too, going, ooh, ooh, it's there. <laughs> I think it was a really good idea to, to start off with an action sequence in that. Mm. But it does take, like, a, a bit of a while to build up. And I think yeah. people, like, if you look at the other three films, they go straight in with yeah. a big action sequence. And quite, like, particularly Raiders, has that really iconic mm. sequence with the rolling boulder and everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my favourite is Last Crusade with River Phoenix yes. as a young 
Indy and the circus train and all that. And yeah, so perfect. They're, they're very, they all have very good openings. And so I think maybe this, like, mm. didn't quite compare. And maybe that wrong-footed people from the start and put them in, in a... Yeah, a, a sort of frame of mind where they weren't going to accept it right from. And I, I know, like, very soon into it, the fridge thing happens, which mm. I think I that think was a that, misstep. That was definitely misstep. It's it's a little too silly, mm. isn't it? And yeah. I know, like, there's a lot of silliness in Temple of Doom and stuff, but it was a good idea to tackle that whole kind of nuclear testing thing, and the, the, it was very era specific, but. It's a little bit too silly, mm. isn't it? I totally agree. I, I think that is where they went wrong. And especially because obviously at the start of every indie film, the Paramount logo turns into something. Mm. It becomes a mountain or whatever. In this one, it's the little pit and then the little gopher comes out. Really badly CG. Yeah. <laughs> and so immediately that's bad because you're going, oh, oh no, it'll cute the animal. Have very George Lucas. <laughs> and, then, um, and then I quite like the car chase thing. Yeah. But I kind of wanted that to go somewhere. Not just, I wanted the kids to, I think something to happen with the kids. It just kind of but, shows you the era, doesn't it? Yeah, it's the it drag does. racing and hound dog yeah. on the radio. Which it's I just totally kind of got. The setting, but, it's yeah. like, but, but then it sort of tailed off. I know there was then all the soldiers got killed and things happened. But it wasn't, as you say, like that, that amazing, why I love Last Crusade, that amazing opening with, yeah. the, with the River Phoenix, who I was also in love with, <laughs> which is just fabulous. And that is like a little mini film in its own yeah, right. Yeah. But you don't get that with this. You don't get that little mini film opening, which you do with the others. It smacks too much of George Lucas and not enough of Spielberg. <laughs> well, Spielberg did actually say uh, he had some problems with the story. Oh, really? But he, he said about George Lucas, he said, when he writes a story, he believes it. And even if I don't believe in it, I'm going to shoot the movie the way George envisaged it, which to me feels like sacrificing his craft Absolutely. for the sake of sentimentality. It's... What's he got over him? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, mm. yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> I mean, the thing is, you, I don't know, a few years back, you'd say, pass that off as a joke, wouldn't you? Yeah. Oh, not anymore. <laughs> right, okay. Right, yeah. um, I think it's, it's interesting what you're saying there, Andy, about uh, talking about the ageing of, of Indian and, and Harrison Ford. And I think, well, I think that's fine if you're Harrison Ford because he still <laughs> yeah. fits into his old costume. Yes, uh, whereas, I you know, if, if I was uh, doing something I'd done 20 years ago, It'd be a touch different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would have been interesting, though, wouldn't it, if he's really uh, out of shape and he'd still come back and Indiana Jones <laughs> in the early <laughs> night. <laughs> oh, no. So, obviously, Harrison's a given. Tick. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about the rest of the cast. Uh, it's been classed sometimes, I think, as an ensemble cast. Um, <laughs> I wrote that down just so I could say the nice, word. Nice, nice. It's nice, isn't it? Um, although I did, I've also, just underneath there, look, you can see that, I've made a note of the word uh, dalliance. You have, uh, which, yes. uh, Andy, I'm, I'm gonna, <laughs> Dalliance. Uh, yeah, nice I'm going to use that more because I think it's a very, very classy word. <laughs> so, let's, let, come on, let's start positive and work our way down. I, I think... you, were, you were right. It was great to see Karen Allen, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. I, 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 the thing is, I had seen this film before and I'd completely forgotten. And when she appeared... I suppose they were teeing it up very, very well. But I was, oh, great. Yeah. Yeah, she still yeah. looks good as well. She Fantastic. does look very yeah, good. Yeah. They look good together too. Yeah. Yes. Like, they both, both age beautifully. Mm. What the chances really, but mm-hmm. yeah, they look great. Yeah, it works. And Jim Broadbent? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Yes. Local boy. He's in my Jim. like list. Yeah, local as, boy. Always always good. As a, as a sort of, he's sort of the Marcus Brody replacement, isn't he? You know, I wrote down that if they do another one of these, I hope maybe they increase his character a little yeah. bit like they did with Marcus Brody in Last Crusade. Mm. Bring him along for the adventure as kind yeah, of like a comedy Yeah, that'd be amazing. Foil. I love Jim Bobbett. Oh, you can't think of anything, can you, that he's been in that he's dropped the ball on? No. Oh, exactly. God, no, no. Nothing. I've never seen him be bad. And he's, he's played all sorts of roles oh, as well. Yeah. He can play Sinister as well yeah. as anything else. Mm, yeah. He's very good. Yeah. And he's a local lad. Just yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
As is John Hurt, actually. Is he? Yes. Hmm. Yes. In your face, rest of the county is right. <laughs> <laughs> now he ham he does rather ham it up in this, does he? I mean he looks like John he had, Hurt. It looks like he had a lot of fun. Oh he had a great time. Uh, but that doesn't always mean to say everyone else is it yeah, always doing all that dancing and whatnot and <laughs> losing I I do I mean I all right. Very hard to speak ill of the dead and particularly ill of the dead John Hurt because he's such a genius. But I don't think he was going for a great performance. But like, it's hard for me to talk about like the different performances because for me, the major flaw of this film was the terrible characterization. I feel like they've really overstuffed it with characters mm. and they're all really underwritten. Yes. And they only seem to really interact with Indy. They don't in- interact with each other. And so it feels like he's he's there with a load of imaginary friends. There's that moment where they're going over the falls and the car is just full of people. And I looked at him and I thought, there's a group of people who have n- absolutely no relationship with each other whatsoever. And I think if they maybe take like this certain characters like Ray Winston, Mac, really don't like his character. I think mm. he's I've rarely encountered a more easily deletable character in a film. <laughs> All he does is go, he, he comes out and he goes, oh, I'm on your side. Oh, no, I'm on their side. Yeah. No, I'm on your side. Oh, I'm dead. And he, I mean, if, you, if you just plucked him out of that, you could have used that time to build up some yeah. more. Likewise, like John Hurt. I know it, it ties in with the whole Crystal School thing, but like... Couldn't his role have been played by a map? Probably Probably something. It only does is guide them, isn't it? I mean, it was. I mean, this is one of my things about it was that Indy isn't just an adventurer. He's a scholar. Yeah. So like in Last Crusade, I will go on about Last Crusade because I love it so much. He deduces all of this from clues. Mm. He's a proper treasure hunter. Um, With this, it's like it's all from Ox Mm. or from that one piece of paper. I'm like, really? From yeah. one piece of paper? I like him to deduce. I like him to go here and there and I found this bit and we put that together and it makes that and blah, blah, blah. Which would have been better than having, much as I love John Hurt, and I do love you, John, it'd have been better to have had that than to have had Ox yeah. feeding him things. It's interesting to me, though, that a film with such weak characters and weak story can mm. still be so entertaining yeah. normally like those things are so crucial to me that it will scupper it mm. and so I think that shows to me what a reliable director Spielberg is that he can keep up that pace mm. and give you those set pieces that just the, like you sit there and you think oh brilliant look they're sword fighting jeeps and they're, they're going over the falls and I love like the uh, the chase on the motorbike through the yeah uh, that was really good the campus and all that and there's enough it hits enough of those points all the way through that you think I don't really care about the story I'm just enjoying everything else that's yeah, going on there just enjoying the romp yeah. it's got that that motorbike scene was apparently not in the screenplay at all it was all improvised which I thought well that's much more indie than anything else that I've seen yeah so and it was pure Spielberg so that's probably why but yeah I love the motorbike scene I wanted more of that well apparently they originally wanted to do just sort of they wanted it all to be stunts and all like all the effects to just be done in front of the camera and so I'm wondering if that's why the CG is so ropey in that it was at the last minute they just bottled out and went no stick some of that in as well yeah maybe so because the practical effects look loads better yeah because I know that uh, Indiana Jones I'm calling him Indiana Jones (laughs) I know Harrison was really keen on them being practical effects like they wanted to make his whip CG but he went oh I'm using the real thing and he hurt himself on set as well he's He's so wonderful. He hurts himself on set quite a lot, doesn't he? But he does. He's yeah, quite you know, clumsy. But yeah. that's because he does some really hardcore things. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he does much more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why he's there and I'm not. Well, there you go, say. Now, Steven Spielberg is renowned for smuggling secret references 
and inside jokes into his movies, so-called Easter eggs, waiting to be discovered by eagle-eyed fans. But these hidden features are not just limited to films. Andy has been plundering his record collection to uncover some mischievous musical Easter eggs. Indiana Jones is one of cinema's most famous treasure hunters, but when watching Steven Spielberg's Adventurous Archaeologist, fans can also indulge their desires to unearth hidden gems on more than just a vicarious level. Spielberg and his friend George Lucas would secretly place concealed references to each other's films in their own movies, which viewers have enjoyed discovering in the years since the films were released. Perhaps the most famous example is in Raiders of the Lost Ark, as Indy lifts the Ark of the Covenant out of its crate, eagle-eyed fans can spot hieroglyphics on a nearby pillar that look suspiciously like the Star Wars drawings C-3PO and R2-D2. Years later, George Lucas placed Indiana Jones among the crowd in the pod racing scene in Star Wars Episode I, The Phantom Menace. Such inside jokes, hidden Easter eggs and coded teasers, some of which originally remained undiscovered for years, have become relatively commonplace in modern films, and it doesn't take long for attentive audiences to find, share and reshare them on the internet. Just type movie easter eggs into a search engine and you can spend hours discovering little touches you never knew were smuggled into your favourite films. But the easter egg phenomenon has penetrated more than just the film industry. For decades, playful creators have been hiding unexpected treats in TV shows, video games, comic books and computing software and there are surely countless secrets still out there waiting to be discovered. But for me, the most fascinating area relating to Easter eggs, and the one I'm going to use Indiana James's treasure hunting prowess as a flimsy pretext to explore, is the vinyl album. Vinyl is a format that refuses to become obsolete, as people still love the look, feel and experience of opening up a gatefold sleeve or dropping a needle and relishing that anticipatory crackle hiss before the music begins. I read the news today, oh boy. But it is also a format that provided a unique opportunity for mischief. Probably the most famous Easter egg phenomenon associated with vinyl is the locked groove. Lock Groove is a silent, looped area on a record that plays over and over until the listener removes the needle. The practical purpose of a Lock Groove is to prevent the record player's tonon from drifting into the central label area of the disc. However, it is possible to record sound in the groove, and several artists took advantage of this in order to trap listeners in a world of disconcerting, petrol noise that would continue until they got up to remove the needle. The most famous example is the Beatles' Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which included a disturbing loop of chattering gibberish at the end of the record. Even more fiendishly, the band also included a high-pitched tone that was inaudible to human ears, but designed to drive dogs crazy, much to the bewilderment of their oblivious owners. The Beatles were also early proponents of a type of easter egg that would become widespread in the music industry, the hidden track. Hidden tracks usually consisted of songs that were unlisted on the album's sleeve and which would suddenly burst into life after a silent gap as a sort of surprise bonus. The Beatles' Her Majesty, an inconsequential 23-second ditty, was hidden at the end of the Abbey Road album and appeared 14 seconds after the conclusion of Closing Song The End, a relatively short gap given that later albums often included half an hour or longer of silence before the hidden track kicked in. 
hidden track gimmick worked best on vinyl and cassette tape, where the listener couldn't see how much time had elapsed on each track. But with the dawn of the CD, which displayed track lengths while playing, hidden tracks became less surprising, since it was obvious that if the final song on the album had a 28 minute runtime, there was definitely something hidden there. That, or you were listening to a particularly turgid prog rock band. One way round this was to hide tracks in the pre-gap of the CD, meaning that listeners would have to start track one playing and then manually backscan by holding down the reverse button to discover the track. This gimmick appeared on albums such as Super Furry Animals Gorilla and Blur's Think Tank, but failed to catch on as, if anything, it made an already annoying practice even more so. Robbie Williams acknowledged the irritating nature of the hidden track on his third album, Sing When You're Winning. Having been treated to hidden tracks on his previous two albums, Williams fans were this time faced with 25 minutes of silence, followed by Robbie's voice stubbornly announcing, No, I'm not doing one on this album. One unique element of listening to vinyl records is the ability to adjust the revolutions per minute speed. Setting your record player to the wrong RPM would cause the singer to sound like Pinky and Perky, or else slow their vocals down to a dirge-like crawl. This feature was taken advantage of by Jimi Hendrix on his debut album Are You Experienced? The psychedelic soundscape, Third Stone from the Sun, features snippets of garbled spoken word which are indecipherable when played at the intended speed. But if listeners played the album at 45 RPM, the speed usually reserved for singles, the dialogue becomes a clearly distinguishable conversation between two aliens as one of them approaches Earth. Hendrix was not the only artist to have some fun with the concept of record speeds. 60s Brazilian band Os Mutantes opened their self-titled debut album with a track called Panis Essercensas. The song begins as a gentle folk melody, but two minutes in, the band insert an effect that makes it sound like the record is slowing down. Having settled back to listen to their new album, listeners were forced to get up to see what was going wrong with the record player, at which point the song bursts back into life again. Writing it off as a technical glitch, the listener sits down to enjoy the rest of the song, at which point the band go on a coffee break. The album is now available on CD and digital download, but of course, the significance of this playful trickery is lost on those formats. If the antics of Os Mutantes confuse listeners, the Monty Python team's 1973 album, Matching Tie and Handkerchief, made a generation of comedy fans genuinely question their sanity. Side one of the album played as normal and featured 12 comedy sketches. However, the flip side of the record contained a double groove, with each groove featuring different material. Good evening. One of the main elements in any assessment of the medieval open field farming system is the availability of oxen for the winter plowing. Professor Tofts of the University of Manchester puts it like this. This meant that, depending on where the stylus was dropped, the listener would hear a completely different recording. In order to cause further confusion, the record's sleeve did not include a track listing, and the labels on both sides of the record read Side 2. 
it was perfectly possible for listeners to never discover one of the grooves or to listen to the same one for several months, only to one day drop the needle and hear something completely new to them. Now look at him laughing, always a chirpy little fellow. Yes, always a chirpy little fellow, eh? Ooh, can he talk? Can he talk, eh? Yes, yes, of course I can talk. I'm Minister for Overseas Development. Ooh, he's a clever little boy, isn't he? Without knowledge of the double groove, the listener might then start the record from the beginning to check that they weren't mistaken, only to hit the original groove and hear what they'd been expecting in the first place. Good evening. One of the main elements in any assessment of the medieval open field farming. One of the most controversial effects that began to be used in the vinyl era was that of backmasking, a technique involving the insertion of hidden backwards messages into songs, which could be discovered by playing the song in reverse. In the cavalcade of hysteria, this phenomenon led to fundamentalist Christian groups accusing many rock bands of using backmasking to insert hidden satanic messages into their albums in order to corrupt fans subliminally. While these accusations were unfounded, this ludicrous episode actually egged on the accused to include such messages in future recordings for satirical purposes. On Pink Floyd's The Wall, for instance, the track Empty Spaces features a backwards message that says, Congratulations, you've just discovered the secret message. Please send your answer to Old Pink, care of the funny phone Chow Fox. The Soundgarden track 665 from their debut album Ultra Mega OK features a backwards song which may at first appear to be about Satan, but is, on closer inspection, actually about Santa, including the lyrics. Santa, I love you, baby, my Christmas kid. No one responded more prolifically to these accusations than ELO's Jeff Lynne, whose 1974 album El Dorado had been amongst those singled out. The song Fire on High from ELO's next album, Face the Music, included the backwards message The music is reversible, but time. Nearly a decade on from El Dorado, with the backmasking furore refusing to die down and even becoming the subject of congressional hearings, ELO released an album that was actually called Secret Messages and was riddled with backwards messages, including the dangerous suggestion, Plant a Tree, and the nonchalant observation, you're playing these backwards. It wasn't just backwards messages that Lynn liked to hide in his music though. One of the most prominent hidden messages in pop music history is the heavily vocoded vocal at the end of ELO's radio hit Mr. Blue Sky. Many believe the voice recites the song's title, but it is actually saying, Please turn me over. A message that only makes sense in the context of the vinyl edition of the double album from which it is taken, where it appears at the end of side three. The voice is an instruction to listeners, telling them to flip the record over. While the rise of CDs and digital downloads changed the nature of hidden messages in music, the golden age of vinyl e-strikes has since been acknowledged by many artists. American alt-rockers The Dead Weather, for example, released a vinyl edition of their 2010 album Sea of Cowards, which featured two bonus tracks that were pressed into the label at the centre of the disc. But perhaps the most endearing of these threads appeared on Tom Petty's 1989 album Full Moon Fever, unsurprisingly produced by Jeff Lynne. The Easter egg, known as Hello CD Listeners, 
appeared only on the CD edition of the album and is located at the midpoint of the record where vinyl listeners would have to get up and turn the disc over. Hello CD listeners, we've come to the point in this album where those listening on cassette or records will have to stand up or sit down and turn over the record or tape. In fairness to those listeners, we'll now take a few seconds before we begin side two. Thank you. Here's side two. A bonus of sorts for those favouring a more modern approach, Hello CD Listeners is also a reverent tip of the hat to the formats that came before it. And with so many hidden messages embedded in the films, TV shows and music we consume, I'd like to take this opportunity to reassure our listeners that we would never try to influence you in such a nefarious manner. Back to you, Paul. Well, thanks for that, Andy. Now, I was going to say that I'm not a fan of Easter eggs, but um, and I think the reason why is I lost patience once with a Dove's live DVD. There was something hidden in there that I couldn't get. I wasted a lot of time. But, um, I mean, as a man who, along with our producer here, Johnny, has been out and buried £100 in the ground for someone to find <laughs> for a different podcast we do called Buried Treasure, still not found, by the way, um, I should shut up about that, shouldn't I? <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you? I mean, do you? Do you like looking for this this kind of thing? This kind of, or do you just you do like you do? Like, I do like things like that. A yeah. Treasure hunt. <laughs> I like a bit of a treasure hunt. I like it sometimes, but sometimes they're a bit too well hidden. Yeah, I like them to be quite easy. And so, to be honest, sometimes I think if it's a worthwhile thing, mm. then I want to be able to access it easier. <laughs> like that super furry animals track you talk about. I mean, it's yeah. a really, it's a really, really great song. Yeah, it's sticking on a band, flipping yeah. album. Get more people to hear it, <laughs> but you know, then you know it's a secret. It's a secret I know about. You know, it's not. It's quite a well spread about secret. That interview fact, it's not really a secret. <laughs> I mean, if you're a super furry animals fan, you know about it, don't yeah. you? So yeah, you know, so in itself, it's kind of pointless. So we talked earlier on about characters, and there's no more character in the film industry, I don't think. And I, I, I do find him entertaining. Shia LaBeouf. Um, where, where do you stand on Shia LaBeouf? <laughs> um, I mean, I, you know, for me, you, you talked about dispo, you know, Ray Winston being disposable in this, yeah. and you're absolutely right. I mean, he should just be flushed down um, some some kind of thing, and he can go off and make more stupid adverts for betting things and whatever. <laughs> just, you know, leave us alone, as far as I'm concerned. And I'd say that, I'd say that if he was in here. You know, people get this thing about Ray Winston, don't they? Oh, he wouldn't say that to his face. I think, well, all right, I might not say that that harshly to him, but... He said, well, he's not, he's not going to beat me up. <laughs> I mean, it's not... You don't just go around beating people up all day long. <laughs> I don't think so, anyway. Huh. I hope not. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, no, so Shia LaBeouf is extraordinary... I find him extraordinarily interesting with, with certainly some of the stuff he's done on social media and, and appears at some points to be on the edge, doesn't he? Yeah. On the edge of sanity at times, yeah. um, which makes me like him an awful lot. Um, but then... You know, there's stuff like this and the Transformers stuff he's doing and you think, oh, I'm not really that into it. No, he's a very strange character. I remember watching him when he was a very young boy in Even Stevens and thinking what? that he was, yeah, did you even, ever, even, even Stevens, Stevens? No, he was a no. very young boy. And it was because my housemate's little girl, not little girl anymore, she's 24. Um, <laughs> but when she was young, when she was I don't know, probably eight or nine, she used to watch this programme. So we used to watch it with her and he was hilarious. He was a comedy genius. 
And I remember thinking at the time, oh, you're going to have a really good career because you're so funny. And he was so bright and he had some charisma. And he was only a young boy. He was only sort of, you know, 11 years old. And then he started doing these really formulaic things like Transformers. And I thought, really? Really? Because you've got more potential than that. Mm. And he did Disturbia, which I quite enjoyed. And then he did this. And then I was thinking, even then I was thinking, you, you've got so much more in there. And I don't mm. quite know why you're playing so safe. And then he started behaving rather erratically and doing some strange things. And I thought, yeah, do more of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think I know a lot of problem. A lot of people have a lot of problems with Mutt. Um, but I really don't. I think he's fine. And I think it's very difficult in the role that he's been given. It's very underwritten. And he was told apparently to watch three films by Spielberg. That was his research. Watch, um, <laughs> what was it? Rebel Without a Cause, uh, The Wild Wild One and something else. I can't remember. And that was it. That was his entire research. It's like, well, thanks a lot, Spielberg. Thanks for that. It's like, I know you've got faith in me, but give me a bit more than that. Yeah. I mean, there's actually quite potentially a lot of depth in this, in this character. This young boy who, I'm not sure, did he say he did, he thought that somebody else was his dad and... I can't remember what he thought his dad was, but to find out that this was your dad and it, it's just all too easy, too quick, too simple. It's like, this is really complex. So in some ways, I, I wish he wasn't his son. I wish he was just Marion's son and it wasn't actually Indy's mm. son at all. Yeah, I feel the Because same. it was just too, it was too big. It was just, it required too much sensitivity and there wasn't any. Yeah, I didn't like the son thing because mm. it's it's such a cliche now bringing mm. in the son. But that's George Lucas. That's what he does. It's a little bit Spielberg as well though. Spielberg has tacked on a lot of things about families to yeah, a lot of his films. Uh, yeah. Particularly like tonight, Minority Report has a very tacked on oh family end. Yeah, ending. that's true. And I think as he's become more family oriented he's, he's kind of that's crept into his films a little bit sometimes mm. to their detriment but I mean what, how did you guys feel about Mutt because I know he gets a lot of a lot of yeah. drumming down I don't understand <laughs> it really I just yeah. think he, he's another bland character in a film mm. that's full of them yeah. and he gives like a decent enough performance he doesn't really have much to work with and yeah, yeah. I, I don't have anything mm. against him, really. Yeah, no, I mean, I like to see it, but yeah, you, you know, it's just like you say, it's blank, isn't it? It's mm. absolutely blank. And talking of which, <laughs> we get we get to Kate Blanchett. <laughs> Jeez Louise, what was going on there? I mean, that <laughs> the accent, and just like, she just, I mean, I wrote I wrote a name down here, Arena Spalco. That's Spalco, that, yeah. Spal- that, I mean, who knew? I didn't know that was a, a name, well, that was no. a thing. He's not a great villain, is it? I mean, no, she's not a good villain. It's a shame because she can play a good oh, villain. Oh, she can. She really can. <laughs> yeah. Again, a misused actor who could do so much more. If if Shia would have been given what he could do, Kate what she can do, mm-hmm. John what he can do. Exactly. You know, we know these people can really do some interesting stuff and none of them were given the chance to do that. None of them. Mm. But, it's um, like they've yeah. been given some kind of limiter, isn't it? It's like, yeah. it's like you've got a Ferrari and you've put a speed limit on it at 56 <laughs> yeah. miles an hour, isn't yeah. it? You know, it's like you totally don't... that. I couldn't understand her motivation, really. I didn't really understand who she was or what. I mean, with the Nazis, it's, it's the big bad, isn't it, with the Nazis? Yeah. Um, she and... wanted to know <laughs> everything. And then she got know, killed but... by knowing everything. Yeah, but... That's what killed her. I know. Knowing everything. That Apparently made her light made her inside. Eyes yeah. burn out. <laughs> Come but on. It's like, yeah, but oh, I don't know. It just didn't make a lot of sense to me. I was like, why are you doing all this? So you can know everything. Ooh. But she's psychic, so she knows everything anyway, right? So I don't know. She just wasn't very oh, convincing. She wants. I was trying to do an accent there. It was coming nowhere near it, was it? It was just... <laughs> well, nor did she, to be fair. Exactly. That thing with the light in her eyes and everything. Away. You could see how on paper they would feel like that's very in keeping with yeah. the... Facey melting. The, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's that kind of PG level of, yeah. of grotesquery that was in the original ones. And so yeah. and occasionally a hitter. I really like the flesh-eating ants. Oh, yes, I, I like I them. thought that was a really good bit and it, it 
felt like those moments when I was a kid and I used to sort of go, ooh, and yeah. look away a bit and, <laughs> in, in the original films. Yeah. But I know a lot of people had thought that was ridiculous Oh, no, as well. I really like that bit. Because as you say, it really flung me back to when I was a kid and I was yeah. like, oh, God. In well, fact, I still did that. Yeah, I, I wouldn't watch... It would get to a certain point of Raiders and I wouldn't watch it by myself. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that, that elongated shot on the man with the ants going and he's still yeah. screaming yeah. and I'm like... Mm. Oh, come <laughs> so what of the alien factor here? What is it said here? That George Lucas convinced Steven Spielberg that this was interdimensional. And Ock says that, doesn't he? Rather yeah. than yeah. Uh, extraterrestrial. I, I wasn't convinced by that. Of course it's aliens. <laughs> yeah. Of course it is. What? But, I don't. I don't. But, I don't know why it mattered. I think that's that's my thing. I mean, th- there is that, a difference. But why bother? Found that too far fetched. Rather than when, if you look back at the the, the previous stuff, the the religious thing and the the wind blowing through the guy's face to make it melt off, that doesn't happen either. The the thing ahead, and I'm I'm sort of up and down the aliens. I really didn't like it to start off with, and I think a lot of people, when defending it, have pointed to oh well, there's the Grail Knight and there's these other supernatural things that happen in it, but. The reason that's not a very good defence to me is something I call the Ratatouille effect. Uh, I love the Pixar film Ratatouille, and me my too. wife hates it. What? And the reason she hates it is because she really doesn't buy the part where he realises he can control the chef by yanking bits of his hair and that moves his arms. And I, I always used to say to her, oh, yeah, that's, that's the moment where the film about the cooking rat loses all credibility. <laughs> But, of course, she's she's right and I'm wrong because just because you've got one out there concept, that doesn't give you licence to bring in absolutely any other crazy thing that you want. You've got to work within the parameters of the world that you've set up. Mm. And so people, a lot of people argued that things like the, the Grail Knight and the Search of the Holy Grail and like the, the religious power of the Ark and all that were all within the parameters of, of this world whereas aliens took it to a different place that seemed not within the, the indie universe. Yeah, I totally get that. That's why I think when I wrote my notes, I said it could have been part of the Ark or part of the Turin Shroud or something, Some relig- there's plenty of religious artefacts out there that he could have gone for. Mm. And I know it was George Lucas that was stuck on the aliens and Spielberg allowed it, but if it's going to be a continuation of the trilogy and become part of that world, that universe, and if you ever watched the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles... It never went anywhere near mm. extraterrestrial, interdimensional, whatever the heck they are. It never went anywhere near that. It was always historical, religious, things that, okay, supernatural may be um, stretching credibility, but of this earth. So to then say all of a sudden there's, there's aliens, I was like, oh, what? No, that's not an indie world thing. Which I So I agree with you <laughs> on that one. It is within the parameters, like with any fantasy. You know, you can have unicorns in something as long as that universe, is, you know, fits that. Yeah. But if you have unicorns in our world, then you can't. So it's got to all make sense. And it just didn't make sense. I've kind of eased up on it a bit because I think mean, there are like a lot of things where people talk about like aliens building the pyramids mm. and that kind of that ties it in with kind of like archaeology and the architecture kind of things. And, and also, I think for me, the big problem is that the fans and the makers are working from two different reference points. This was originally conceived, the whole Indiana Jones franchise was conceived as a tribute to those Saturday matinee things that really went out there. And a lot of the time there would be like invaders from Mars come down and things like that. And that's what Spielberg and Lucas were were trying to recreate when they made those original films. And that still seems to be what they're, they're using as their reference point here. Whereas... 
now there's a whole group of people who grew up with those Indiana Jones films in the same way that Spielberg and Lucas grew up with those Saturday matinee things. And so now that's, for a large part of the audience, the original Indiana Joneses are the, the reference point. It's shifted now. They've, they've done it too well, so they've reset the parameters mm. because in creating a homage to that, it's become so iconic that it's overtaken that as the original basis of what they're trying to do. Interesting there what you say. I mean, you talk about the next generation. Uh, what's, what, what's going to happen next? You know, because there there's going to be another one of these things. There is. What, yeah. Earth, yeah. They're going to think of next. I think of Please tell me they're going to learn. They're going to learn from what happened previously. I would hope so. And, you know, get back to, to, to where it's good. It depends how strongly this thing of Spielberg just bowing to Lucas is, mm. is if he's going to learn from those mistakes and go, I'm going to step in when mm. he, he suggests ridiculous things. Or if he's still yeah. going to go, how much has he mellowed yeah. in his old age that he's going to he's gonna think, I'll just bow to my friend and, mm. and do what he wants. He's got to be really cautious about how much he takes from Lucas for the next one. Next one and possibly, well, will be the last one, let's face it. Probably, yeah. Yeah, I think even Harrison said that because there was originally meant to be five. I didn't know this. Apparently there was always slated to be five. That's news to me. I didn't know that. But Harrison said the only reason he agreed to come back for the fourth and then finish with the fifth is because he said at the start that he would do all five. It's an unusual number to set out to make. I thought so too. So it's really trilogy. What's 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 a five? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I thought Last Crusade spelt it out and said that was it. Last Crusade. Well, this is it. This is what a lot of people have a beef with is that last shot on Last Crusade. Not that you've seen it, Paul, but you really should. Is is just perfect. No, no, honestly, it's his best role. Very funny. Best role. Please watch it. (laughs) But no, it's just the perfect ending shot. It's a real iconic end shot, and it's like that was the end, really. But then they went, no, let's revive it. Um, One thing that occurred to me, like when I was thinking about how like massively negative the reaction to this was mm. and you know people like really overreacted and they did with the Star Wars prequels and new Star Wars they don't like as well where they go oh well, part of my childhood's died <laughs> and they say oh it's like just just they they act as if it's it's cast a whole like shadow over the rest of the franchise mm. why is that the case with Indiana Jones and Star Wars but not all those crappy dual sequels that they make <laughs> People are happy to just like write them off and go, oh yeah, it's nothing to do with the original. So why why is it different in this case? I have no clue. It's really strange. It does wind me up when people say, oh, that's ruined my childhood or whatever. It's like, why? Because it hasn't changed. Surely anymore. that enjoyment you had when you were a child still exists. You can still remember yeah. that and that feeling that you had. And go back and watch it if you can. Absolutely. It'll bring it they all back. They haven't changed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, what I'm interested in to know, I think you, you both said that you went out to the cinema to watch this when it when it first came out. Yes. Indiana yep. Jones and the King of the Crystal School still too long a title <laughs> will you be rushing out to see the next one will you, you know, or, will you, or are you going to wait yes. and... I would probably go to the cinema again yeah because yeah, well. I rarely get to the cinema these days but this is the sort of thing that gets me to the cinema I'm happy to to watch most things at home but things with a bit of spectacle to them that's when I feel the draw of the big screen again yeah absolutely and I, I mean, think that's probably why I didn't get gravity because I never saw it on the big screen oh that had to be big screen so uh, maybe I should see it on the big screen you sometime really yeah, you really yeah. should IMAX preferably yeah, would be amazing w- one of my only you know I don't go to the cinema because I don't like people <laughs> um, oh, so annoying aren't they people they are quite annoying man alive they just can't be they can't I mean they can't <laughs> Sit there without eating, eating. without eating anything. Yeah. People are the same. People are the same with football matches as well. They complain. I mean, we're recording this in Lincoln. I'm a big Lincoln City fan. People complain all about the food. 
Football generally kicks off at three o'clock. I eat my dinner and then I go home and have my tea, right? <laughs> and I know some people say, oh, they have lunch and dinner, right? Okay, whatever floats your boat, that's fine. But in between those times, I can survive. <laughs> <laughs> some reason you need to eat. It's the same, same with the cinema, isn't it? Just like, oh, man. It's, it's like two and a half, three hours max mm. and you can't not eat for that time. What is going on? I think they should do special screenings that are no food, no talking, absolute zero tolerance. You have to give in your phone when you go in. Mm, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I love that. Not a dictator or anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. We should open a cinema because uh, we need another one here in Lincoln, actually, don't we? Because the one we've got is too expensive. Yes. Right. Enough whinging. Um, <laughs> I mean, ultimately, this film is a lot of laughs, isn't it? Yes. It is superbly entertaining. It's never going to be your favourite film, but it is superbly entertaining. So, I mean, Andy, as, as someone who put this forward uh, to the jury, where, where, do you stand, where do you stand on it now? I'm quite, you know, because obviously... You, Hated it. I did, yeah. You put it forward. You wanted a, f- a fair hearing. Um, where, where are we? Are we? Are we looking at the end now, aren't we? So I'm going to ask you, Andy Goulding, <laughs> is this a £500 bottle of Cristal, see what I did there, uh, from Fortnum and Mason, or a bottle of Blue Nun from the corner shop? <laughs> um, I think it's a bottle of Blue Nun from the corner shop on an evening when that's really what you fancy. Yeah. You don't, you don't want the Cristal. You want a bottle of Blue Nun and a bag of crisps. <laughs> <laughs> and it go and it goes down nicely. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's funny we've just spent the entire time just saying this is wrong with it, that's wrong with it, this is wrong with it. These characters are blank, but ultimately we all really enjoyed it. Yeah, and that's the beauty of an Indiana Jones film. It's perfect. You know, someone bought a bottle of Cristal recently out at a nightclub for my friend Scott, and uh, he was out and he, I think he left some of it because he didn't realise what it what it was. <laughs> what it was. Have you ever have you ever had it? I've never had it. No, I'm not the biggest champagne fan really. <laughs> Once drank a bottle of, uh, not a bottle, a glass of, uh, <laughs> w- w- the bottle was worth £70. And it, it was it was very nice. Wow. It was very nice. The other half, they know how to live. <laughs> <laughs> right, so we've got our verdict in, but I do want to, I, do, I, I suppose it was speculating again about what's going to happen. But not not really thinking about that film, but just at the end of this, because we like to think about what happens, you know, when 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 the, the, the cinema lights go down. That marriage ain't going to last, is it? <laughs> it totally is. What? This is true love. So what? I'm not having it. And she's chilled a bit. She's chilled a bit because she would she would kick his ass previously. And he's she's grown feisty. up a lot. She'd changed. She'd softened. He'd grown up a lot. They'd be fine. And then you know they're getting on, so they'll be fine. So when we see Indiana Jones in the shorter film title, that <laughs> you reckon they're going to go on an adventure together? Yeah, and um, I have read that Shia LaBeouf is not going to be in the next one. So whether that means they've cast somebody older to play his son. Or if his son's just not going to be in it. I don't know. But if she's not in it, there's going to be hell to pay, Lucas. Because <laughs> I love Karen Allen. So she better be in it. We'll be doing another spoiler. It'll be me ranting about Karen Allen not being in okay, it. Okay, so I've, thre- I've threatened Ray Winstone. You've threatened uh, George Lucas. Yeah. Andy, do you feel you need a grievance to get off anyone's <laughs> Well, I'll think about it. I'll get back to you. There must be someone. I'm sure there is. How about the Andy of a few years ago that thought this was yeah. so awful? Yeah, yeah. Yourself. You have a yeah. word with him. He's, yeah, like, like Indy, I have grown. <laughs> well, what a perfect way to end. Indeed. Um, so thanks, everyone. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks to Johnny. Thanks to you for listening. And uh, as there we go, wrap up Series 7. We look forward Ooh. to talking to you uh, again in Series 8. Uh, do email us. Hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Um, sometimes I joke about us having suggestions and carrying out listeners' requests, but... The other people around around the table seem to quite like the idea. So uh, yeah, so do. and you can always prove me wrong, can't you? You can always, you know, 
all that arrogant host. <laughs> Prove him wrong. Anyway, thanks for listening, and we'll leave you now with the genial Andy Goulding. When Hollywood runs out of novel ideas and turns to a decades-old franchise, the half-hearted fruit of this cynical move can seem devastating in a fan's eyes. But when you respond with that now-common phrase, a part of my childhood just died... It feels too dramatic to be so emphatic on such a minute point of pride. While I do understand disappointment is tough, when you claim that your childhood is dead, I would rather donate to an actual cause than a campaign to remake Last Jedi. Return to the films that inspired your love, and you'll find that that love remains equal. And the movie's unaltered by what happened next. Why put so much stock in a sequel? Why fret that you hated Attack of the Clones? Who cares if Jurassic World stinks? I fear for your grip on your own sense of self if you hang it upon Jar Jar Binks. Retaining a part of the child you once were is a gateway to magic and wonder, but if you give that part a governing role, you're making a serious blunder. If you're still that beholden to childhood's realm, then you spend too much time in the blinking place. Perhaps you should just let your childhood die, it'll give your adulthood some thinking space. You've been listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Bennett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell your friends about us, share links to our show, or write us a nice review on iTunes. If you'd like to contact us, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Find us on Twitter or Facebook or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hall and is a Joe Schmo production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren Radio in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. It was a city of supreme beings with technologies and paranormal abilities. you got to be kidding me. <laughs>